Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a rainy day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Chris Goodale. Chris is the Operations Director at Marpac Limited, a trade specialist in carton finishing based over in Leicester. Chris, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hey, good afternoon. It's um, a pleasure having you, Chris. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is about leadership, and that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, as business leaders endeavour to guide their firms through the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, Tell me, for a firm in your industry, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been really disruptive. It it has, indeed. And I think the key to this was really looking at what was happening in the wider market and wider society. Um, when uh, in the build-up to this. So, obviously, we could see the early signs in China um, that there was something wider and bigger happening. But then we looked and saw what happened tragically and continued to happen in Italy. Um, and then once we saw that in a Western democracy that there were lockdowns, etc., happening, that gave us the trigger to really implement our preparation um, in anticipation for any uh, restrictions that were to happen in our industry. Mm. And can you think in a time, um, can you think of a time rather earlier in your career, Chris, where as a business you've had to take decisions like this? Because it's often said that this is unprecedented times. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I don't think anyone in our lifetime has seen anything on the scale of what we're seeing now. I think, I think, if anything, the Brexit preparations that we had made have really set us in a good stead in the build-up to this. So we'd always planned on a hard Brexit, regardless of what happened in Westminster, in Westminster or in Brussels. Mm. We anticipated and planned for a hard, worst-case scenario. And anything else on top of that was positive for us. So with that in mind, the, the COVID-19 um, interruptions that we've encountered, we've very much overlaid our hard Brexit planning on top of that. And, and there's been a lot of similarities to secure our supply chain to, to allow us to have continuity of service to our sector. That's really, really interesting, actually. And um, it's fantastic that, of course, that's uh, worked out quite well. Um, But it's a reminder to business leaders, isn't it, that it's so important not to lose sight of the long term, isn't it? It's um, not to be distracted by short term gain is really the message that should be um, heeded there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and in a a society that is very short sighted and, and lives for today, that wider strategic vision seems to have fallen by the wayside, especially in small and medium businesses where people are looking for that immediate gain rather than let's just sit it out, let's invest, reinvest back into the business, not let's not take our dividends, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Let's just let's just bulletproof ourselves and move ourselves forward uh, in which we can grow in a really constructive framework. And I think that's one of those things that we definitely as a business have of, of really pr- um, prided ourselves on is 
is that proper preparation for the future. And for younger business leaders who are starting up organisations and businesses in um, other sectors as well, I mean, it's so important for them to really heed that message, isn't it? To always think of the uh, the long term and the stages of development rather than just taking dividends in the short term. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And, and be prepared for setbacks as well. I think we, we live in a society where fame and riches are almost expected instantaneously. People just need to accept that hurdles will happen. Bumps in the road do happen. And not to be set back by that. Just absorb them, learn from them, and then implement those learnings as you go, rather than just sit back and think, it's the end of the world. Just just sit back and absorb it or take lessons and really, really grow yourself as, as a leader. Would you say it's actually possible to be a good leader without first getting lots of things wrong and trying things and then learning from those experiences? No. no. And, I, and I think anyone that says that they do is a liar. Frankly, anyone who's successful in anything has experienced those failures. And, and you have to go through the experience of being um, numerous times you can grow and grow and grow along the journey and it is an absolute journey you can't you can't expect success instantaneously you have to be in it for the long haul and really invest in yourself and invest in those around you and the infrastructure around you I think that's very, very sound advice indeed. And um, I think as well, there's almost um, in today's society a little bit of a fear of failure and a fear of ensuing criticism, isn't there? So people don't necessarily take risks, deviate from the norm, and they are afraid to try things. Whereas maybe we should be telling them to embrace failings and be willing to learn from them, shouldn't we? Oh, oh, without a shadow of a doubt, embrace it. Don't be afraid, afraid of failure. Embrace it and it will only make you stronger. That would be my, my one tip to anyone. Absolutely. And uh, we've talked about, um, of course, um, the business strategies that um, RPAC's implemented, which has um, put it in some reasonably good stead um, for guiding the way through this pandemic. Um, but how would you describe your own sort of personal leadership model, Chris? I think with most leaders, um, it's an evolution. Uh, every leader has to... Um, be open to one feedback but also be willing to invest in themselves and learn if I look back on the the 21 year old me compared to where I am now they're two different people and and, and the benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing where you can you'd almost like to look back and just have a word in your younger ear your, your, your younger ear and just say come on work with yourself here and cut mm. yourself some slack where I am now is is very much um, I'm quite reflective now as where in the past maybe I would probably been a bit too frank a bit too eager to climb to the top after we I've been through that journey and experienced those failures I'm a lot more philosophical about the whole thing now in which I want to sit back absorb the information in front of me not make an emotional decision and base it on logic and data. Mm. And, and that recipe can 
is is a really good basis for success, and that's where, uh, from a personal perspective, I find myself in now is be logical, be calm, be empathetic to those around you, embrace the majority. In leadership, you can, you will not make decisions that are popular to everyone. Mm. Accept it. But what you can do is take a lot of the people on the journey with you. If you invest in them, get them to invest in your idea and your in your vision, and that journey will, will end up in the destination you want it to. Yes, I think that's really sound advice. And um, you did mention really interestingly as well, Chris, um, if you could go back and uh, speak to the younger self and give yourself some advice. Is there anything that you would tell the younger you, if you could to that, to do differently or any different qualities that you'd sort of tell them to embrace going forward? Well, I come from a military background. So my my, my leadership training was um, of a slightly different ilk. Mm. However, when I left the military, I still had uh, set into my DNA, as it were, that, that, that um, unrelenting drive to succeed and to succeed in where you went, uh, in how you get there and, and what you want to achieve. I think when, when I left, that didn't always translate to civilian life. So mm. I was so eager to get to where I wanted to be or how it, I was, uh, how I perceived that uh, a successful position to be. That I was, I was probably um, too um, like a cliche from The Apprentice, where in senior leaders they are not like that. They are not in those positions where they are so cutthroat that they really want to climb that ladder regardless of the cost. And it would be that just to say, just just take a minute, breathe, and just understand what uh, is expected of you in in this environment. I think that's really, really interesting, uh, Chris, uh, because I suppose that from a military background, um, you can, of course, transfer some skills and some experiences from that into a business career, but it's not always a direct transition, is it? It's something that has to sort of be a little bit amended in terms of the approach. And um, that must have been a real learning curve as well and really helped you on your journey to becoming a leader in business. I did, you know, and and, and don't get wrong, the, the military has a lot of bad leaders, but also has a lot of inspirational leaders as well. Um, and I've drawn on those good leaders, but also given a wide berth to the learnings um, that I've taken from seeing bad leaders. And you're absolutely right, that, that transition is not an easy one. However, it, the military did set me up with resilience if anything, and and that allowed me to absorb those um, those road bumps um, in civilian life, and really reflect and absorb them and grow um, personally and uh, as a business leader. And that's um, really really interesting to hear as well. And um, do you think good leadership is? 
as celebrated perhaps as much as it should be in the UK and indeed recognised because we, you did mention earlier that um, we often think of leadership um, in, as in terms of short-term gain and celebrity and fame and all this sorts of things and these are the sorts of figures that we think of as leaders aren't we we're tempted to think of these sorts of people but in a business context great leaders can often go under the radar and go unseen in comparison mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I think there's a, a modern misconception that to be a good leader, you have to uh, stomp your feet and uh, intimidate your way to get people to do what you want. Uh, that's that's an absolute falsehood. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest tool that I found in my armory is the ability to empathise to a, a broad spectrum of people, understand their wants and needs in order for the collective to achieve that wider vision. And I think that's something that absolutely is seen, um, mistakenly so, as a weakness. Um, I've, I've encountered a lot of these individuals who, um, men and women, um, throughout my career who, who believe that, that intimidation type false alpha person um, model works well it's not if you look at the successful people around all the way to the Bill Gates of this world are in a position where their influence is through their softer skills and I I say that and it's it's quite uh, counterintuitive sometimes for me as someone who's been in the military to say that is to say it's the softer skills that will get you through and to influence those individuals rather than um, brow bash them into getting what you want. Mm, exactly. It's very much about inspiration, isn't it? And, and getting the mm. best out of people, but also surrounding yourself with people who are also going to bring the best out in yourself as well. Mm-hmm, absolutely. To get to that inspirational um, position, there will be challenges and there will, be, there will be situations, absolutely, and as I found myself in, where you are having to have very difficult conversations with individuals who um, are unable or unwilling to um, come with you on that journey. And, and unfortunately, not everyone makes it. You know, that's, that is life and people do move on. But if you can surround yourself with those individuals that, absolutely buy into your message and your brand as an individual and what you are trying to achieve, the, the, the effect on your organization is unquantifiable uh, and you can genuinely achieve uh, something much larger than you can ever anticipate. And if we do think about the future and what uh, MARPAC is hoping to achieve, particularly so in the next year, navigating COVID-19 and coming out the other side of the pandemic, um, what do you envision for the future, Chris? I think very much we'll come out stronger from it. Our markets are um, pharmaceutical and food and drink packaging. So we are a BRC accredited organisation as well as a PS9000 organisation. So we do service all of those sectors. I think from the the challenges that we found is our supply chain um, going into shutdown. Um, That has made us have to be in the position of self-reliance. And I think 
I, when we when we all come out the other side of this, and that will happen probably quicker than than we anticipate. Um, there will be a lot of businesses that will come out a lot stronger from it, and that will come from a, a personal development side of it when it comes to crisis management, or just a self reliance perspective. You know, we we are servicing the industry; we continue to do so, and our um, our business strategy is actually untouched, and we are continue to grow for the future. Uh, that sounds absolutely fantastic. It seems like there's an awful lot of ambition there, despite uh, the uncertainty um, that surrounds um, society at the moment. And what I think would also be fantastic, Chris, is actually to look, have maybe have you back on the air in a few months' time and look at what we said retrospectively and just see how mm, the business yeah. has been done and how um, those hopes have been borne out, really. But for now, I have to say, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me for the benefit of the listeners. It's been most insightful. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Chris, and I've really enjoyed it. Coming up Good. next um, on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was that it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So 
And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role. You know, and just in terms of... Because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know... uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in 
in seeing England win at something, we're all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm -hmm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation, Absolutely. and it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, 
But th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it very different 
challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively 
how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.